Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. So, speaking of losing your marbles, uh, some of you know I have four kids, and my two in the middle are both, so I have an uh, oldest girl, three boys, and so they're eight almost and six, and so I always, always be careful. I don't think they'll ever go back and podcast anything um, as they get older, but I want to be careful like what stories I share and like what light I put my kids in and all that stuff. Um, so they're amazing boys. They really are, but like has anybody raised a six or eight-year-old boy uh, or boys before, like one of the things I'm realizing right now that I should have been quicker to, to kind of latch onto is kind of the Old Testament principle of the law of you tell them not to do something and that incites the um, insatiable desire to want to do it immediately as quick as they possibly can. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And so um, that's a, a number of different things. So we're just in a season right now where like 85% of the time they're really good, but they've got this like mischievous side to where like the other day I wasn't even thinking about it and our oldest daughter got a lava lamp and she's, you know, nine, almost 10. So that's like a rite of passage. And I just knew because like it looks cool. It's something different. I'm like, boys, do not touch that. And as soon as I said it, I'm like, that, that was the worst thing that I could have said. And so three days later, um, after an episode where the lava lamp was a football, I had to sit down with my boys and like, I told you not to touch it. And so that's just like where we're at. If I tell them not to touch something, not to do something, to go clean up their crap, I begin to rehearse what the consequences are going to be of them not doing that. Because at this particular season, I know it'll get better. I have zero evidence that my hope is founded that they're going to in any way follow through with those things in the areas of like cleaning up their crap and not touching their sister's stuff. Now, don't act self-righteous or whatever. Like, is anybody in the room with me um, rather than trying to act like, like, I can't, what's wrong with your kids? Like, that's just a thing, right? So here's the thing that we apply so easily in terms of life in my six and eight-year-old boy that we don't apply well in terms of religion and faith. And that is the whole idea of belief, faith, and hope. Because here's how the rest of the world works when we apply logic around those issues. And that is that we believe anything in any area of culture, whether it's like things in relationships, a corporate environment, like just life stuff, you believe anything based on evidence, right? And then hope is formulated from that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like that's just how we function in life. And yet somehow that logic is lost when we apply anything to Christianity and anything to faith. So in this series called You Are Not Far, we're going to look at the Gospel of John who recounts these events with the life of Jesus that he walks through. And one of the things that John addresses is this tension that if you don't um, or you're not aware of it as you read his gospel, you'll completely miss it. And you'll completely miss a huge context for the reason that he's writing the whole thing. Because here's the two most misused words in all of Christianity or religion, and it's these two right here, faith and belief. 
They're the two most misunderstood and misused words. Like we understand them in other facets of life, but then they get really weird when we apply them to religious context. And this will be difficult for some of you to believe, but it's true. That these words by themselves don't have any kind of supernatural or special meaning to them. Like the the definition of faith and belief in any area of life is what applies to Christianity. And yet somehow that logic has been lost because we believe based on evidence. And in fact, you could even say this, like there's certain times we believe based on the confidence that we have in, in the individual that's dispensing the information. So part of, you know, you experienced that in school the first time you learned eight by eight is 60, eight times eight is 64. You probably didn't go home and stack up like 64 blocks and put it out on a table just to make sure they were telling you the truth. You just accepted it because you had confidence in who was telling you. So that's part of it. Then there's the other dynamic of belief where sometimes we get conflicting information and we're just not sure what to believe. Like there's certain studies that I feel like happen every other year, it feels like, and they just always contradict each other. Um, This is the first one I thought of because I'm such a um, avid kind of over the top, probably should cut back coffee drinker is like, I feel like the studies on coffee are all over the place. And so I've just decided to um, submit to confirmation bias, and I'll just take the one that puts it in the best light to, you know, just kind of make me feel better about my seven-cup-a-day coffee addiction. Like, I'm just going to go with that. But sometimes there is conflicting um, information or ideology, and we don't really know what to believe. But here is what is still true for all of us. We believe anything ultimately based on evidence. And here's the thing. Religious faith and belief are often divorced from reason and they're confused with hope. And John in his gospel in John that we're gonna look at for four weeks, it's like, listen, if you don't understand this dynamic and this tension, it's one of the reasons that you feel like God is so far away. It's one of the reasons you feel like there's such a big gap because somehow you've lost sight of what you've been invited into in regard to faith and belief. In fact, some of you grew up and this was kind of the faith that was presented to you. Hey, just have faith. You're like, what? Or in fact, in maybe certain denominations or areas of the country, it was, it was kind of applied like this. Hey, just have faith, brother. You're like, what? And I'm not going to ask for hands. Like, just, just believe. And John would come along as he's writing this gospel and go like, what? Who told you that? And later Jesus would come along and go, what? Who told you that? You've actually never been invited to just believe or just have faith. What Jesus is inviting you into and what John writes about is much more robust and is much more profound than that. Frank Turek, who is a guy that lectures on university campuses, college campuses. He's an apologist, which means he talks about like the defense of the scripture and Christianity and why we believe that it's an intellectual faith. And so he'll debate all these different individuals. And he said this one time that I think is so true and so relevant. He said, the reason that so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. And he's not meaning that you were like argued into it. He's meaning you were never given an evidence for it. You were never given a foundation to your faith. You just grew up with, well, you just need to believe or you just need to have faith and that's it. And you're like, well, I've got some pretty robust questions. No, no, you should just believe. You should just have more faith. And John goes, no, no, no. that's not what Christianity is based on. In fact, one of the things that's really important, just side note is starting point is the thing that we run now about six times a year is the best place if you're in that place of just curiosity. I'm not sure. I don't know what I believe. Bad church experience. Or I I believe, but there's not really any foundation or anchor to my faith. 
that is one of the best places to start because every faith journey and story has a start. And one of the things that you'll actually discover through Starting Point that we'll talk about toward the end of the service is this, is that John all throughout his gospel says, listen, the invitation is not just to believe. And for some of you, that's what you were given by a well-meaning Sunday school teacher or by a freshman college professor who kind of jacked up faith for you. And, And Somewhere along the line, you were told by somebody, hey, you just need to have faith. You just need to believe. And you did. And then you grew up. And your questions grew up with you. And suddenly, you were talked out of a faith that you were never talked into, meaning you were never given any evidence for. And at some point along the way, as strong as your faith maybe feels in the moment, if there is no anchor to it, eventually just have more faith and just believe might not be enough anymore. See, here's one of the things we're going to discover in this series that's so important, is there is a massive difference between by faith and because of faith. And what I think is so important is there's kind of two groups. There's the I'm curious, I'm figuring out, I don't know if I believe. Maybe you're at the place of I don't want to believe, but you're still kind of answering or trying to ask some of the questions. There's that group. And then there's another group that's like, hey, I've just had faith. I've just believed my entire life. And this series is relevant for you as well because I've done this long enough to watch people and sit with people who followed Jesus for three decades and just have faith and just believe was sufficient for them until something hit the fan that took the legs out from under their faith. And suddenly there was no anchor there. Suddenly there was nothing else to it. And the just have more faith didn't work because they had no reason to have more faith. See, here's the really interesting thing about John that we're gonna look at for the next four weeks is that John left his family's fishing business and began to follow Jesus, not because of faith. He did it because of what he saw and it changed everything. And toward the end of his life, he's probably the last surviving apostle when he writes some of his documentation. He's the only dude left. And he has been with Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He had conversations with Jesus. And somebody convinces him to sit down and to document everything that he experienced. And here's what's really important about what John does that we're going to look at. John was not content to tell us what happened. John wanted to tell us why it happened. And in fact, he gives us this purpose statement toward the end of John, and we'll come back to it later, but I just want to fast forward to the end and then come back. John says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, meaning there's a whole lot of stuff we don't even know about that Jesus did, which are not recorded in this book. And he's not talking about the Bible. The Bible is a library. It's a collection of books. He's talking about the book that John ultimately wrote that recounted the life of Jesus. But these are written that... And in the Greek, this is a little henna clause, purpose statement, result, that you may believe. And this is really interesting. John is not telling us, as we'll discover, he's not telling us what to believe. He's actually building a case for why we should believe. And then he says, okay, so, so what? And then he's very specific, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the result, verse 31, is that by believing, you may have life in his name. And just by the way, life in his name is the thing that Jesus wants to lead you toward, and that's every one of us, because you could be at the place where you have legitimately believed and followed Jesus, but you still haven't gotten to the place where you've really experienced life to the full. 
And so John sits down and he documents, and here's what he did. He documents the sequence of events that led him to follow and believe in Jesus. And here's basically what he lays out. There were events that were signs that ultimately gave evidence, and that evidence led to believe that, believe that God is who he says he is, believe that Jesus really was sent from God, and then ultimately believe that led to trust in. Like this was the sequence of events for John that actually led him to follow Jesus and to have faith in Jesus. But this is what's really important where you have to apply logic that you apply to the rest of your life. It didn't start with trust in and then hope it works out. And for a lot of you, that was the faith that you were handed. John's like, no, 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 you haven't been called to that. That's not what Jesus is inviting you into. And that's not my story, John would say. In fact, here's what you'll find from almost all of the disciples. They were with Jesus. They saw signs. It led to evidence. They believed that, and then they didn't believe anymore. And then they believed that again. And then there was reasons not to believe. And then they finally believed again. And then that belief ultimately led to trusting in Jesus as their savior. And they were willing to give their lives for him. But it didn't start with trust in and then hope that it works out. And so basically John says this to us. This is the means and the sequence by which I began to follow and believe and ultimately trust in Jesus. And it was good enough for me, and I think, John would say, it's good enough for you. And so he actually constructs this book, the book of John or the gospel of John, around seven major events that served as signs. And we're going to look at five or six of them um, over the next few weeks. But here's what's really interesting. John uses the word sign and not miracle. And let me just give you a quick heads up is that for many of us, we've never really been taught how to interpret the scriptures. So we look at the events and the life of Jesus and we look at what is happening and we think that's all there is to it. And yet almost everything that Jesus did in the New Testament was a foreshadowing of what he would do in the future. Meaning it wasn't just about the miracle. It wasn't just about the event. It wasn't just about that moment. God was always revealing something bigger and foreshadowing something bigger in the moment. And when you learn to read the scriptures like that, I'm telling you, the life and the message and the weight of what Jesus brought to humanity comes alive. And so he, he uses the term signs rather than miracles for that reason. Because these were not, all the miraculous things Jesus did were not random acts of kindness, which is what we think about, right? Like, it's amazing. Jesus fed so many people. Um, He healed the blind. Uh, He allowed the lame to walk. Like, it just, it feels like Jesus was just this huge, like, give everybody food. He was a healthcare dispensing machine. I mean, everywhere he went. I mean, he just, I thought that was funny, but whatever, like, um, (laughs) Like, and it's just, it's just about that. Like he, he made people well. He made people who were um, hungry feel fed. But there was way more to it than that. In fact, all of those things were byproducts of what Jesus was actually doing and what Jesus was actually after. And in fact, John, as he's writing this gospel, would say to us, don't get so enamored with the miraculous that you forget what the miraculous was pointing to and who the miraculous was pointing to because that's who you should be enamored with. Because all of these miracles, they were simply signs pointing to something and what they, what they pointed to ultimately was Jesus' identity. Who he was, what he was about, and what he was bringing to planet Earth. And so as he starts his ministry, he begins with one of his most famous miracles that you maybe know, even if you didn't grow up in the church, we have thousands of people literally watching 
um, listening specifically via unfiltered radio all over the state from all different backgrounds. But this is kind of the one where a lot of us have heard about it. This particular miracle and story, if you know which one was first, has um, brought a ton of consternation to certain denominations and evangelicals for decades. So if you are there and you've heard this in a certain context, that's fine, but it is the, the turning water into wine. And if you just kind of want to like stake your claim on, like it was just grape juice and you're going to be uncomfortable throughout the whole thing, that is absolutely fine. Do that. I'm not going to threaten you. Like it's not really even the point of the story, but I just want to tell you it was wine. So um, John chapter two, verse one, and on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And as we're going to find out, apparently Mary, Jesus' mother, had like official catering, hosting duties. We don't know if this is like a side hustle. This is like extra money for the family. But she was there. She had a big role. If you've ever like led, catered anything, wedding planner, and I don't, I can't relate to what they do, but I've worked with enough to go, that's a very stressful job. If you're throwing any kind of big event, so that's the seat that Mary is in. This is right after Nathaniel had joined um, the apostle group, if you're familiar. And so there they are in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. She's helping lead part of this as the host. In verse two, Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. And so John is a part of that group, and he's writing this. He's like, I was there, I saw it happen at a front row seat. And here's what's interesting. These wedding celebrations generally would last for days, which, you know, I perform weddings. I love them. You know, try to be in and out in 45 minutes. I cannot imagine. I can't imagine days. And so what is said next is a big deal. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, and I'm, I'm imagining it wasn't that there's no more wine. I'm imagining like, there, there's, no, there's no more. There, Jesus, there's, there's no more wine. Like, there's no more wine. Look at me. There's no more wine. Because this is like, okay, open bar is what everybody had been promised. Many of the husbands came simply because they thought they were going to get free drinks. And now you're 15 minutes in and all of the wine is gone. And I know if you're in the place of like, well, I can't believe you would reference. Okay, it's grape juice. You can, you can stick with that. But it wasn't. It was an open bar, and everybody, they're going to be there for days. If there is not something stronger than grape juice to drink, there's no way you're going to survive that. And so 15 minutes in, it's gone, and Mary's like, you have got to do something about the fact that the open bar is no longer open. And you have to say, okay, just go in here a second. You have to imagine Mary, too, like, as everybody's around there. It's like, why are you hitting up Jesus with this problem? But Jesus has not yet, you know, fully revealed himself and what he's capable of. But I've got to think that Mary had gotten some previews. Like, we don't know. But was the, was the fish and the bread, was that the first time? Like, was there a moment where Mary's like, I, I can't get groceries today. Is there any, is there any way? I don't know. But you got to think, I'm just imagining with Mary, turning to everybody to go, look, I, I know every mom says this about their, I'm telling you, this boy is special. And I know, like this boy, <laughs> he is very resourceful. Like I'm telling you, you wonder why I talked to him about this. This guy does stuff. And so the wine was gone. Jesus' mother said to him, there's no more wine. And then Jesus, in verse three, woman, which... <laughs> Don't try that at home. 
But here's what, because I know we interpret that like Jesus, like, yo, woman, that's not, that's not what this was. This is actually like a formal response because he's in a formal gathering. So this is the equivalent of like my lady, because Jesus is not going to be like a mom, right? So he's like, woman or my lady would be a better kind of contextualization. Whoa, I love it. Why do you involve me? My, my hour has not yet come. Like, mom. Down, I don't want anybody to hear me saying this. Mom, um, I came to save the world, not weddings. <laughs> I didn't come to keep open bars open. Like this is, this is not what I saw as like my big launch, my big moment, you know, to start my ministry to the world. Like where it's a wedding. This really, I'm going to just, because my mother-in-law is in Africa right now. I don't think she'll listen to this. But my mother-in-law several times, this is what I thought of, has like asked me to do things where it's just like, it's just the weirdest request in the world. Like, what? Like, I don't do that. Like, I, I can't, you know, I, whatever. I can't speak to the women's netting club. I don't know, I don't know anything about that. And, and, and then, but what do you do? Because I love my mother-in-law. Like, you just do it anyway. Because of who's asking. But here's the thing, though, with Jesus, actually, like, nothing that Jesus did took Jesus by surprise. And nothing was not strategic. And nothing was not a foreshadowing of something that he was going to do in the future. And so Mary's there, and she's telling Jesus the problem. And then I've got to imagine she smiles, and she turns to the, the servers and everybody who's catering the wedding. And verse 5, she's like, do... Just trust me. Do whatever he tells you. And it might be crazy, but I'm just telling you, you should just do it. He's got a way with making things happen. And then she just walks away. And John, don't miss this. This is so important. John, as he's writing this, I think this is the moment he thinks back and it dawns on him that this was actually the perfect moment, the perfect launch, and the perfect beginning to Jesus' ministry. Not for everybody who was at the wedding because they actually would have no idea what was going to take place. But for everybody who would come behind and who would ultimately read the words of John in the Gospel of John, this was the perfect launching pad. This was the perfect moment. This was the perfect introduction to everything that Jesus was bringing into the world. Because I'm telling you, you read the New Testament Gospels and the stories and the miracles of Jesus, and it's like amazing Jesus turned water into wine, and you have no idea what was actually happening in this moment. That Jesus was setting the stage foreshadowing, putting language around, using this as a, a physical example of why he had come. And so in verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars. And this is so important and so symbolic. And, and most of us have never even gotten this as we're reading it. There were six stone jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. And you might know this, but but the whole Old Testament covenant or law or temple system was all about rules and rituals to kind of make you okay with God. 
Like there was a temple system and there was a holy of holies and you couldn't go in and you needed a priest who was a go-between and then you needed the blood of bulls and goats and lambs that would kind of temporary, temporarily cover sin and you needed 633 laws and all of those things were simply a shadow because they could kind of temporarily help you out. You could do the routine at the temple, but they could never take away the shame and the guilt. It was always temporary. It always left you wanting more. And in fact, the whole Old Testament covenant and law and sacrificial system was a setup to go, this isn't enough. You actually need a savior. And these jars were representative of those 633 laws, of all of the rituals, all of the rites, all of the reminders for the average person that they had to jump jump through so many hoops to try to get to God. What is even the point? And he takes those empty jars that represented the ceremonial system and actually represented and were icons of the covenant and the traditions of the old covenant and the Old Testament. And he takes those icons and traditions of the covenant and uses this as an example that Jesus is about to replace all of it. The symbolism isn't lost that the jars are empty for a reason because the system was empty. The system had an expiration date. The ceremonial, sacrificial giving of bulls and goats and lambs eventually would end. And so Jesus decides to go public by using something that would soon be replaced to point to something that would be put in its place. That God's temporary covenant with Israel, the temple system, the sacrificial system was disappearing. And something new, somebody new, had come. And it would change everything. And the people there in that moment, at that ceremony, at that wedding, had no idea. And so verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then I love what this guy, F.F. Bruce, says, incredible theologian who's gone on to be with Jesus. He said this, the water provided for purification is laid down by Jewish law and custom." stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Christ was to replace with something better. Like this moment, it's lost on us many times, but this moment was the perfect introduction to what Jesus was about to do. It was a foreshadowing of something greater that would change how humanity related to God forever. So they told him, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And just real quick, this is like the head waiter. He's responsible for, you know, who gets served. And if you don't know the story, you're thinking, okay, crap. Like they're going to bring this guy water. He's going to fire everybody. It's the last catering event they're ever going to do. And yet John assumes we know the ending. He, He never actually addresses the miracle because everybody knew about it. He just assumes, you know what happened. And so when this guy tastes the water, he doesn't taste water. He tasted the water that had been turned to wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and they were still astounded by it, as you can imagine. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, confused, everybody brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have too much to drink, because at that point, you know, who cares? They've had enough to drink. They can't tell, is it a bottle? Is it a box? It's just like... That's, that's strategic, that's smart. 
And then don't miss this. this is, because we just read this and it's like, well, that was an amazing miracle. And man, if Jesus was still in the business of turning water into wine. But these last couple words are so powerful in this verse. And, and I just want to tell you, it's not about the miracle. The miracle were signs this pointed to something. So the end of verse 10, it says, but you, Jesus, have saved the best till now. And God had as well. Because the sacrificial system which, which Jesus was using as an example through what he did with this miracle, the sacrificial system set the stage for something brand new, a brand new movement, a brand new approach to God that would be presented to planet Earth by Jesus through Jesus. This is the same thing that happened when Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan River and John the Baptist, a different John, looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the entire world. And in that moment, he's drawing a parallel to go, listen, up until this point, you've known the deal, right? You're not enough. You bring your bull, you bring your goat, you shed the blood of lambs, you come to the temple, you can never get into the Holy of Holies because you're not one of those guys, you're not one of those girls, you need a priest to get to God, you never feel like you're enough. I mean, come on, how many people have kept 633 of the laws? It constantly feels like there's another hoop to jump through. It constantly feels like there's another thing that God requires. And even after we give the sacrifices, which is what we're supposed to do, the shame doesn't go away. The guilt doesn't go away. We just have to keep sacrificing. We just have to keep coming back. The cycle never ends. And John in that moment is going, you guys know about the lamb that has to be offered for sins. You just need to know there's a greater lamb that's here. And this lamb is going to be sacrificed on your behalf. And there's going to be no more sacrifices needed because he is the final sacrifice for sin for all time. The curtain of the temple is going to be torn. There's going to be no reason for a priest. The temple is going to come to the ground. And now you're going to be invited in to have a relationship with the Savior of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords based on what he's going to do on your behalf. And the 633 laws, they're going to go away. And the sacrificial system, it's going to go away. And the ceremonial washing, it's going to be done away with. And it's all going to be about one command centered on Jesus. And you are going to be invited in to follow him as Lord and Savior. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every other Lamb, Every other system is going away and it's just going to be Jesus. Something better is here. And in this moment, as he performs his first miracle, his statement, even though we miss it, is something better is here. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the covenant with Israel that was temporary, it was inspired, it was initiated by God. It was meaningful, but it was a means to an end. Ultimately, it was a means to show us that we don't measure up and we don't have what it takes and we need a savior and he's gonna come in the form of Jesus. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was simply a guidepost, it was a sign pointing as a shadow to the good that, was, that would come. And so listen, don't miss this. This was not about a miracle. This was about a sign that pointed to something, to somebody 
And nobody in the moment would have any idea. So what Jesus did, verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs that pointed to something, Jesus' identity, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples did what? Let's try it one more time. The disciples did what? Believed. Believed in him. And then as I said earlier, because maybe it makes you feel better and me feel better, and then they didn't believe in him. And then they believed in him again. And then they walked away and denied him. And then they got more evidence and then they believed again. And then eventually they saw enough evidence based off of signs that they believed that and then they trusted in and they gave their lives as followers of Jesus. But the invitation of John in this moment is not, hey, you should just have faith. You should just, have, you should just believe. They believed based on evidence. And for some of you who are tempted or have already walked away, you just need to know, intellectual faith and the faith presented by Jesus in the New Testament always requires evidence. And so after this, he went down, verse 12, to Capernaum with his mother and brothers because eventually she had more kids and his disciples. And they stayed for a few days. And so it began. And here's the thing real quick, and I'll start to land this. Unlike John, most of us don't come to faith by seeing. Like you you might kind of have a story of like, well, then I saw this person, they inspired me and they moved me or there was this event or this thing. I just felt like God worked in a huge way and that was the catalyst and I placed my faith and that's amazing. But really the, the means by which the sequence by which we come to faith and belief is not by seeing because John was like physically there with Jesus. For us, it's by hearing. And it's not simply hearing and just, hey, you should just have faith. You should just believe. It is belief based on evidence from the people who gave their testimony and who were there like John. And just think about this. John came away from his experience with Jesus. Again, probably last surviving apostle. Outlived everybody else. Do you know how many of his friends he watched die? Do you know how many crucifixions besides the crucifixion of Jesus where he had to smell those smells and watch those sights and hear those sounds, watching his friends being carted off and imprisoned and persecuted for what they said they believed and what they saw? Can you imagine what he went through? It's possible that John saw the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in in 70 AD. He's the last survivor. He's wondering what's going to happen in the future. And yet John, with all of that, with all that he has seen with his eyes, all that he's felt, all that he's experienced, he gets to the end of his life and he is convinced of what has echoed through the generations and what John wrote for himself. That after everything I've seen, everything I've been through, everything that I had a front row seat to, I'm just telling you, God so loved the world that whoever trust in him, believes in him, will not be lost to God, but will have life that begins the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus, and it extends throughout all of eternity. John would say, God is not far. And despite what you think or your circumstances say, you are not far from God. It was John that saw everything that he saw that got to the end of his life and he was convinced that the word talking about Jesus became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. And John's not talking about us. John's like, I'm talking about us disciples, first century. We hung out with him. We had meals with him. We watched what he did. We watched how all of this ended. And yes, we saw signs and we got evidence and we believed. And just so you know, we didn't believe. And then we believed again and then we didn't believe. And I'm telling you, there was a moment where we saw so much from Jesus that we were convinced that God came in a body, that he dwelt in human flesh, that he came in the midst of us. And I, as the last surviving apostle, I'm convinced that we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son, Jesus, who came from the Father, and he was full of grace. He was full of truth. I think John would say, I'm just a dude, just a guy. There's nothing supernatural about me, even though I'll be romanticized in the ages. I'm just just a guy, but I felt strongly enough, and I was convinced by others who were there that it was worthy of me documenting the rabbi from Nazareth. And I didn't do it so that you would know what happened. It's way bigger than that. It goes way deeper than that. It's a much bigger anchor. I did it so that you would understand, so that you would know why. John said, these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in you might have life in his name. So here's my hope, is that as we take this journey over the next few weeks and we go from sign to sign, my hope is that for many of you, for the first time, you would move to the place based on John's account, based on evidence that you would believe that you would trust in and you would discover life in his name as well. And for others of you, like you've believed that, you've trusted in for a lot of years and I'd never take that away from you. And it's amazing that that faith has held up for you and that's a gift from God. But I wanna challenge you. I wanna encourage you to anchor your faith, to recognize it is not a house of cards. It is not fragile. It is based on something substantial. And that even though you already believe, this would be kind of a season and a moment where you would surrender your life to him based on what he has done. So here's what we're gonna do over the next couple of weeks I'd love to invite you into because there is so much power when whether it's tons of people via unfiltered radio or you're watching online, you're in the house, when we kind of journey together. So I wanna encourage you over the next 21 days to journey through the gospel of John and just read it with us. And, And again, there's just so much that happens when as a house, as a gathering, we're kind of thinking on these things and doing this together. And so you can go to Uversion, which is an absolutely free app on your app store. And you can look up this reading plan right here. This is the image that you'll see. It's created by Fresh Life. Or um, it will be available on our app very, very soon. So wherever you get the message notes, you have the Centerpoint Church Florida app. It's going to be available right there. I would love for you tomorrow morning to start this. not going to take very long. And then it will end on Sunday, July 17th on the final message of the series. But I want us to journey together. And my prayer is that many of you would get to the place to really believe that and trust in, not based on you just having more faith or you should just believe, but based on John's testimony and eyewitness of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And listen, if you were talked out of it because you were never talked into it, meaning you were never given evidence. Don't miss this series. Don't miss inviting somebody to this series. And don't miss fully leaning in, even if you're not sure. Because come on, what do you have to lose? 
And for others of us, I'm praying that this would be the moment where God would anchor something in our soul, even if we already believe it, where we would surrender, resurrender our life to the rabbi from Nazareth. As we close, I couldn't think of a better way to close than with communion. And I don't do this a ton on Sunday morning, nor does our team, because we have such a diverse church, more than probably people realize from all different backgrounds. If you didn't grow up in a church background, this can just be weird. Like, why do you do this? And so I get all of that. And so if you're kind of figuring this out, you're investigating, you don't have to participate. In fact, I'm not going to ask you to stand or do anything. You can just chill right where you are. If you are at that place to go, man, I've I've believed, I've placed my faith and trust in. There's no better way to remember what has happened and what God has done than through this ordinance, which is what it's called, that Jesus left us. So on the way in, if you got one of these um, little cups with the juice and the bread, we're gonna take this in just a moment. And Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, he was in the upper room. And he basically tells this guys, you have no idea, but I'm about to punctuate everything that I've said in a few hours. And if you wanna know what love looks like, if you wanna know what it looks like to really lay down your life, I'm about to just demonstrate for you in a way that you can't even imagine. And that night he takes, takes the juice, the wine, and says, this wine is symbolic of my blood that's gonna be shed for you. I don't want you to ever forget. And then this bread is gonna represent my broken body that's gonna be broken and crucified for you so that you'd never need another bull or a goat or a sacrificial lamb again. I'm gonna be the final sacrifice. I will be all that you need. And then he tells his disciples, and I don't want you to forget this. Every time you remember this, I want you to remember the weight of what I've done and how it should apply to your life. And here's how it should apply. If I was willing to lay down my life and love you to this extent, that's what I want you to do to the people around you. I want you to take what you have learned from me in this vertical relationship and then I want you, I want you to transfer it horizontally in the relationships around you. And if you wanna know what it means to follow Jesus, it's no longer complicated any longer, but it's harder. You don't need 633 laws. You just need one singular commandment. I want you to love others the way that I have loved you. And if you wanna know whether you're a follower of me, that's what it looks like. And so as Jesus told us to remember this. He actually kind of, Paul writes about it later, is just take a moment to just kind of give yourself some space and just think about, am I representing the love of Jesus in the life and the relationships around me? And so before we partake in communion in about 25 seconds, I just want to give you that time to just think about or ask that question based on what God has done for me. What does that look like in the relationships around me? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? you would take the cup. This can be a little tricky, but there's a tear off right on the top of it with the bread. And Paul, as he conducted this with the first century churches, take the bread and said, this is symbolic of Jesus' body being broken for you, for your sin, for the sins of all of humanity. Do this in remembrance of me. You tear off the next part of it, which is the juice. The New Testament says this juice is symbolic 
the blood of Jesus ultimately that would be sacrificed, that would be poured out for our sake. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. In just a moment, we're gonna kind of end the service with this tone as several of our team comes out and they're gonna lead us in a song and then we'll be dismissed and we'll be done. And this isn't one of those where you stand. This is one of those ones where we just wanna give space for where you're at to sit in your seat, to process this however you need to, to kind of think about what we talked about, where we're journeying. But they're gonna come in just a second, but let me pray with you right now in this moment. And Jesus, I just pray that you would do what you've been doing for 2,000 years. And I know this is big language, but it's been what I've been praying for for weeks, even as I prepare for this series. I pray that you would bring about revival in the hearts of people. And I know that for some, that's been really misused words and, and maybe even words and language that have wounded. But I pray that in the best possible context, revival that comes by the work of your spirit in us based on your love and your grace. I just pray that you do something in our heart. For some of us who are journeying, I pray that we take steps toward you over these next few weeks. Maybe for some, literally, we would have that moment where we cross the line of faith. And we move from believe that to trust in based off of what you've done in history. And then for others of us who already believe, we already have faith. But there's a shallowness, there's a lack of any anchoring. I pray that you would anchor this hope in us over the next few weeks that would change our lives. And so God, do your thing, do what you do because your word is living and it is powerful. And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.